The epistle reading is from Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, 4. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, quote, You are my son, today I have begotten you, unquote. Or again, quote, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, unquote. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, quote, Let all God's angels worship him, unquote. Of the angels, he says, quote, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of life, end quote. But of the Son, he says, quote, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions, unquote. And, quote, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end, unquote. And to which of the angels has he ever said, quote, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, end quote. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, would you pray with me? 
Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the sure and steady anchor that you are, Jesus. Thank you that you call us, you call us by name. Thank you that we can rest in you. Thank you for your sonship. Thank you for um, your calling us to yourself. And Lord, help us not to stray. Help us not to neglect your voice or your calling or the great salvation that has been before us. Hold on to us, Lord, and help us to hold on to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the song we closed with last week was on Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. It's another one. It's kind of hard to go wrong with that song. It's a uh, beautiful hymn, also one of my favorite hymns. But one of the verses in the song that stands out to me is, When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. Through every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Um, Now, some of the older versions, this may even be the original, I haven't checked, but uh, it says, when darkness seems to veil his face. And although I'm not used to singing that version, I'm used to singing when darkness seems to hide his face, when it seems to veil his face kind of puts into context where our anchor holds, where our anchor should be holding. When Christ is darkened by the storms of our life, when there seems to be a veil over him, and we can't see him. The hymn, uh, the, the hymn writer is saying that his anchor, that our anchor, should be in that veil where we are constantly holding on, even through the midst of the storm. Now, as, as you remember from last week, we talked about the Hebrews and the Hebrew church that, uh, that this letter was directed to. This small, this small church of Jews in the Roman Empire that were feeling a storm of their own on the horizon. The threat of Nero's persecution that would surely send them adrift if they weren't anchored well to a sure and solid foundation. They had already survived the one persecution, as we said, and as is reminded in chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, that that one by Claudius, but, uh, but they were drifting. As they were seeing this other persecution coming, they were beginning to drift, and they were beginning to doubt. They were beginning to feel the winds blow and the waves crash, and their faith in Jesus was faltering. So the writer of the Hebrews, he starts off his letter to remind them. And you know, we didn't get very far last week, but there was a lot there, and there's really a lot packed in this next passage as well. But he starts off by reminding them of this sure foundation that they have, this solid rock, this anchor, Christ, who got them through the first persecution. This abiding hope, as he calls it. And we saw last week that the Son, as the writer puts it, that God spoke through the prophets, many prophets in the, la- in the early days, but now, in these last days, he speaks through his Son. And we saw that his Son was God's final word, God's final sacrifice, and God's final authority. But more than that, we saw that he is God himself. He is the radiance of his glory, the imprint of his nature. He is eternal God. This is really the preface to this letter. It's the foundation on which the writer is going to build the rest of his message, the rest of his word of exhortation, as he puts it. So we really dealt primarily with three verses last week. 
We looked at the fourth, but this fourth verse is really a transitional verse as he shifts gears kind of to, to start going back and showing how Scripture testifies to the Son. But it's a little bit of a twist here, if you notice. Verse 4 says that the Son is much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The twist there, as you know, is he starts off talking about the prophets. God spoke through the prophets. Now he's speaking through the Son. And all of a sudden he brings in the angels. Did you ever wonder why he brings in the angels? I was asking that question a lot. What does this have to do with angels? And by the way, that's just a great way to study scripture is just to ask questions. Interrogate the text, as one of my professors would say. Ask questions. Without even having to know the original language, there is so much we can get out of the English version that we have on our laps by asking it questions, by by spending time in it. And we also have, of course, scholars who who give us some wonderful commentaries, uh, which I've depended on quite a bit this week. Hmm. So the angels, what do we know about the angels? Well, if you look through the Old Testament, you'll find angels all throughout the Old Testament. All throughout. Um, The first appearance, the best I could tell, is Genesis 3.24, when God puts, after the fall, God puts cherubim in, in front of the guarding the tree of life with a flaming sword to keep Adam and Eve out of bounds there. But we also see angels appearing all throughout. We see them in Job. Um, we see them in, in all the prophets. So let me, let me just give you a few little, just kind of a glimpse at, at the use of angels in, in the scriptures, in the Old Testament scriptures. Number one, they're used for judgment. We see that a lot. But one, one uh, text is Isaiah 37 36, where it says, And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. We see them being used for protection in 2 Kings 6, the uh, famous passage where Elisha has the eyes, has um, uh, the chariots of fire, the, 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 the legion of angels with chariots of fire and horses protecting and then striking the Syrian army with blindness. And then we see them used with the prophets. And this is also very interesting because when we think about the angels and their use in the prophets, we see how instrumental they are. Take Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, when the seraphim touches Isaiah, when he's in the presence of God, and the, and the seraphim saying, holy, 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 and Isaiah is, is, is bowing down saying, woe is me, I'm, I'm of unclean lips. And the seraphim gets the burning coal, and he brings it, and he touches Isaiah's lips. And he says, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And then Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. We see an angel in Daniel being confronting Daniel in chapter 10. We see the beginning of Ezekiel. We see an angel. And all this time they are fearful. Daniel is trembling. And all of these, well, here's another one. Out of the Old Testament, we have Revelation 22, one of the last verses in the Bible. The Apostle John says, I am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, this is uh, chapter 22, verses 8 and 9. 
He said, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. This angel was so fearful. His appearance was so magnificent that John could do nothing but bow down and worship. And of course, the angel says, don't do that. You mustn't do that. I'm an angel. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God is what the angel says. That's what he tells the Apostle John. So we see that the angels are nothing like what we see in some of our artwork. C.S. Lewis was not very happy with the way the Renaissance painters portrayed angels. He presented them with what he talked of chubby babies and and ones that instead of saying, fear not, the angels in, in the artwork of the Renaissance painters, he said, were just saying, they're there. They're very gentle looking, very approachable angels. But that's not the angels that we see in the Old Testament. It's not the angels that we see. As soon as Mary is confronted by Gabriel, she, he says, fear not, don't be afraid. Fear not is what, is what happens with almost every appearance in the Bible of an angel. It's fear not. It, it strikes fear in the one who is being confronted by them. So, of course, there is this tendency to worship. In fact, there is a sense that there, there's an idea that, that, that there was possibly some worship of angels going on at that time. Now, nothing is said in Hebrews about worshiping angels, but Paul addresses the Colossians in chapter 2, and he says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism or, or beating yourself up or, or deny, depriving yourself uh, for the sake of, of gaining holiness. And the other thing, and, the, and worship of angels. So he said, don't let anyone disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. Going on in detail about visions. So there was a concern there about people who would worship angels. And why not? Because when you hear about how the angels are presented in Scripture, they seem like something you might want to worship. It may give people this feeling of a connection with the divine, a connection with the spirit world by worshiping angels. So it's very possible that this was happening also. And this is one of the things that, that the, the writer to the Hebrews is saying to the, to the church saying that Christ is better than the angels. But there's more than this. And where it really comes out is in chapter 2. <clears throat> if you notice, verse 2 says this, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. Well, what's he talking about? The message declared by angels. See, he starts this, this letter off talking about God speaking. God speaking through the prophets, then God speaking through the Son. And the Son is the ultimate Son, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king, the one who speaks God's final word. So how are angels involved in this, in the message? <clears throat> well, if we look back at uh, some of the Old Testament and even the New Testament, it's pretty clear that it is believed that the angels were involved in the giving of the law. Deuteronomy 33.2 says this, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones, believed to be angels, with flaming fire at his right hand. The Septuagint, I believe, even says angels. The Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament, by the way. 
but even more explicitly in the book of Acts. Chapter 7, chapter 7, Stephen's sermon. Stephen says this about Moses. He said, this is the one, Moses, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness and the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. An angel was involved in giving this to Moses. And there's more. The Apostle Paul to the Galatians. Why then the law, he says in chapter 3, verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So the son who speaks in these last days is greater and has a more excellent name than the ones who gave the law. Remember, there was a, a, a concern of drifting back to the law, of drifting back to the Judaism that they were brought up on, the Judaism that was also accepted in the culture. It was more mainstream. It was easy to slip back into this. And the writer is saying, listen, the son is greater than the prophets, He's also greater than the angels. I know that you're venerating the angels because they brought the law, and I know the law is important, and I'm not dismissing the law, but, but they are servants, and I'm going to show you where the scriptures where it says this. That's what he's telling you. He's trying to create now a, an even firmer foundation of the word to show them his case. <clears throat> but what he says in verse 4 is this son is greater than the angels, and he says he has a more excellent name. So what is this name? Again, because I think the name Jesus? Well, we know the name Jesus was around quite a bit, so everybody named Jesus didn't have this name that was above every name. So we can scratch that off. Now, in Philippians 2, Paul says that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. So is it Lord? And that's that's more, more probable in that context, that it's Lord. But the truth is, there were a lot of Lords also. So it's not just the name Lord. It's just not the word Lord that was providing this more excellent name for, for the Son. And by the way, It's not even son in the sense of son. Because angels themselves were called sons of God in Job in in, in chapter 1. They're called the sons of God. Israel is called my son. The sons of Israel, the people of Israel called sons of God. So we can't really even peg it on son. But this name that's above every name, this name that's more excellent than the angels is more about the position, is more about the authority attached to the name Son. It's not so much that Jesus is called the Son, but it's more about his sonship. It's more about his sonship and how it's connected to the Father, to Yahweh. Consider this, if someone is called president, that doesn't carry a whole lot until you know what they're president of. If I'm president of my cup company that I just started, and me and... Maybe my wife is my uh, 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 CEO, <laughs> then, uh, which that would be a good decision on my part. But the name president wouldn't mean a thing. 
of course, but President of the United States carries a lot more power, a lot more authority. Same thing here. It's the sonship that is carrying the authority and the most excellent status with the Lord. And what we're going to see here from these scriptures that he shares, he shares seven Old Testament scriptures. And these scriptures, when you're looking at them, also create a lot of questions. Because when you look at them, you're thinking, you start scratching your head. Thinking, what in the world was he thinking? But what we're going to see, hopefully we can, we can get some of this figured out in, in the time we have. But what we're going to see is the sonship of Christ. The sonship of Christ, what we're seeing here is that it is undefeatable. He's going to put that out, that this is an undefeatable sonship. It's a sonship that is unending, and it's a sonship that is unchanging. And he's giving them this as their anchor, as what they can hold on to in the midst of the oncoming storm, and something that you and I can hold on to in the midst of our, coming, our oncoming storms as well. Going through our seas of doubt, our seas of fear, and just our seas of all-out onslaught. That this is a name that is above every name and something we can hold on to. So it's an undefeatable sonship, and he shows that first with two, with a psalm and a, a passage from Second Samuel. And he says this in verse 5, he says, For to which of the angels did God ever say... And by the way, take note that every one of these contexts, he's, every one of these passages, he's saying God said. He's making it clear that God is the speaker because God is the source of the word. When we're reading the word of God, when we're reading any one of these scriptures, no matter who is speaking, it's the word of God. And that's the point he's making when he says God says. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? <clears throat> well, so to start off with that, I look at that psalm. We just had that psalm read. Steve read it. And when you look at it, it doesn't really look like it's talking to Jesus. If we look at it and just be honest. In fact, the psalm is, is, is to David. So what do we do with that? This is a, this is a messianic psalm. It's a, a, a royal psalm or a messianic psalm. And it is really, it is, yes, it is to David, but David is the, 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 the one whom God appointed to have the, what's called the Davidic covenant, the covenant of David. And that covenant is an ongoing covenant saying that he is going to continue his throne forever. His power, his authority, his throne will be forever. And that's what this psalm is saying. He's saying, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, this psalm is by David, and it's to David, but the thing, the thing to, to point out here is it's not fulfilled in David. Because if we look at the rest of the psalm, I should have had this marked, but if we look at the rest of the psalm, we see some things that just have not happened. We see after this, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. David never inherited all of these things. David never destroyed all of his enemies. 
David never dashed them in pieces like a potter's vessel. He never had complete victory over his enemies. So this is the writer saying, the fulfiller of the Davidic covenant is the one who is my son. Today I've begotten you. And this is the one who has fulfilled these things, who has inherited all things, as he said earlier in the chapter, and rules all things and holds all things together by the word of his power. And then he is connecting another one. He says, or again, in chapter in verse 5 still, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Okay, this one was harder. Is he talking about Jesus here? Is he speaking to Jesus? Well, let's look at this whole passage just in 2 Samuel chapter 7. There's also a, a similar quote out of 2 Chronicles, but the commentators, most commentators believe this quote came out of 2 Samuel 7. And this is the Lord talking to David from the mouth of Nathan the prophet. In verse 13, we're going to start in verse 13. It says, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So once again, the throne of his kingdom, this forever theme is going on here. He's saying, David, I'm making a covenant with you. It's going to be a covenant that will last forever. Your throne will last forever. I will be to him a father. This is the quote that's in Hebrews now. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Next line. When he commits iniquity... I will discipline him with a rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men. So this clearly is not talking about Jesus in this context at this time. At this point in time, he's talking to David about his son Solomon, who will sin, who will be disciplined. But Solomon also does not fulfill this covenant. Solomon does not keep this thing going. This is a forever covenant because he said so back in verse 13. I will establish your throne and your kingdom forever. In order for that to happen, there has to be someone who lives forever. There has to be someone who can do that through time and through eternity. I will discipline him with the rod, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom, David, shall be made sure forever before me. Who could make it sure forever before Yahweh? What man could possibly do that? And he says at the end, your throne shall be established forever. So at this point in time, this was not speaking to Jesus, but now as a fulfillment of what Jesus did by raising from the dead and being seated at the right hand of the Father, he is now the Lord's final authority. He is the one to carry on that covenant of David and now able to carry out his house forever. The throne that it was to be established forever is now established in the Son. That was probably 1,100 B.C. If we move ahead a few hundred years, Isaiah continues with this theme. Chapter 9 of Isaiah, he says... For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. You know this well, and the government should be upon his shoulder, and his name should be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. And he says this, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. He's establishing it 
and he's upholding it by the work that he did with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. When Jesus defeated death, when he went to the cross and died, and he rose, and he went to be with the Father, seated at the right hand, it was at that time that he defeated everything and he was seated at the right hand. The Apostle Paul says this at the very beginning of Romans. He says he was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection of the dead. It doesn't mean that he was never God's son. But in this sense, in the sense of his sonship, that was undefeatable. It was when he did his work, when he completed his work and sat at the right hand of the Father. It's in victory that he is declared to be the ultimate Son of God. And then we have one more quote here from Deuteronomy 32, 36. I'm sorry, 32, 43. It says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, once again, the writer to the Hebrews is using all of his Old Testament, almost all of his Old Testament quotes are coming from the Greek version of the Old Testament. And just like we have, uh, most of them are from the Septuagint, the most famous one, but there are other versions of the Greek Old Testament. So just like we have the ESV Bible and the NASB, we have different versions of our English Bible. There were other versions of the Greek New Testament or Old Testament going around as well. So sometimes you will see variations in how these are quoted. But here this comes out of the Septuagint, and it's let all God's angels worship him. And he, and he prefaces it with saying this, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. This is what one uh, Jewish commentator calls a victorious or an invocation after the victory of God delivering his people. And he's saying, let all God's people worship the Son. Verse 7, he says, of the angels... God says, he makes his angels winds or spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. So he's contrasting now the angels with the sun. He's saying, see, the sun is to be worshipped. The sun is the one who is carrying on the throne of David forever. But of the angels, God says, he makes them ministers. He makes them ministering spirits, ministering winds. He uses them for the purpose of spreading his word. So he's undefeatable. His sonship is undefeatable. And now he, he uses some uh, scripture quotes to say that his sonship is unending. Verse 8, but of the son, God says, your throne, O God, is forever. It's forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, he's addressing him as God and saying, your God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This comes from Psalm 45, 6 through 7, which uh, when you look at that psalm, it almost looks like uh, part of Song of Solomon. It's a, uh, it's a psalm, I think, I think it uh, says the title is, is a love song, but it's addressed to the king. And, and here we have God speaking and says, Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The sonship of the Son is an unending sonship. It is eternal. It's secure. 
In verse 10, we see the unchanging sonship. He says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Those things will perish. They'll go away. But you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you'll roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you, Lord, you, the Son, are the same. And your years will have no end. There's an eternal aspect of there, but also an unchanging aspect. The Son, although the prophets changed as humans... The son who had the final word, the son who is the ultimate, made the one-time sacrifice and is continually seated at the right hand of the Father is unchanging. His word is secure. His word is unchanging. And we'll see this again in the book of Hebrews. And then he quotes one last time. His seventh quote comes from Psalm 110. And it says, To which of the angels... Again, contrasting the sun with the angels. The sun, your throne is forever, and you're never going to change. But to the angels, has he ever said this? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Sit at my right hand. The right hand is the place of honor and authority. And when, when Christ came and seated at the right hand of the Father... He is seated in the place of authority and honor. And in verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits? Are not all the angels ministering spirits? Sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? He's saying, are they... These angels that you're holding up to this level, that you're tempted to worship, aren't they just ministering spirits coming to minister to you, to the ones who are to inherit salvation? That's, that's us. That's us. They're instruments of the Lord. They were made by the Lord, and they were made for a purpose. The purpose is to serve the Lord, to serve the Lord in giving his law, to serve the Lord in ministering, to serve the Lord as we saw throughout the Old Testament here in some of these passages, in judgment, in protection, in sending, in bringing messages. But they are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. The salvation there to inherit is not provided by the angels. It's provided by the Son, the one through whom God spoke, the one who created the world, the one who holds all things together, the one who fulfilled his promises, the one who's established his new covenant and has established his kingdom forever, his throne, the throne of David that was promised forever. It's the Son who has done that, and his sonship reigns now and forever. He is undefeatable, he's unending, and he is unchanging. And to the Hebrews, he's saying he is trustworthy. This is the one you want to cling to in the midst of the oncoming storms. No matter how difficult things are, you want to cling to the Son because he is the worthy one. He is the one on which you can stand. And so he says, therefore, in chapter 2, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Why? 
lest we drift away from it. This is, this is, the way this is written, this must be, uh, we must pay closer attention is an imperative. It's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a, it's like say, it's like having an obsession with paying attention. There's an imperative there to paying attention to what we have heard. The message of the Word of God is something that we need to pay attention to, listen to, and hold on to it, lest we drift away from it. This drift away also is, is unique to the book of Hebrews. It's, it's a nautical term referring to a boat. Most commentators, uh, I, I've heard like a leaky boat, a boat that will continually just leak and bring on water and sink, or one that will drift away. And as you see, the, the interpretation here is, is to drift away. Holding on, having something to hold the boat so it doesn't drift away. For since if the message declared by angels or prophets proved to be reliable, the law is reliable. The law is, is, has done what it, was, what it was intended to do. And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. There were consequences. And those consequences were carried out through the law. The consequences were made clear. There were sacrifices in the law to remind the people that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That was a reliable word and a word that was delivered to us by angels. And we should hold on to that and take, and take note of that. But if it proved to be reliable, how shall we escape if we neglect the greater? Remember, Hebrews is all about Christ is better. Christ's word is better. Christ's covenant is better. Christ's sacrifice is better. Christ's covenant, everything that Christ has done is better than what was presented in the old. The old was making the way. They were shadows of, what, of things that were to come, better things to come. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation from, from those consequences? And he goes on, It was declared first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. We see this throughout the book of Acts. We saw it in Christ himself with his, with his signs and wonders to show that the kingdom of God has come. The son, the sonship has come to earth through Christ. And he demonstrated that by wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed how according to his will. So we're, we're left here with a challenge. And I wanted to get through chapter 4 because it leaves us with a challenge. The same challenge that the writer to the Hebrews gave to his readers. Number one, to pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. But I want to jump down to chapter to verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Notice he doesn't, he doesn't say, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great message? But he calls it salvation. Because Christ himself is what he's talking about. Christ is our salvation. The Son is our salvation because of what the Father appointed him to be. Now this word neglect, if you, uh, if, if you have a reference Bible, you may see this. Actually, it's, it's, uh, there's a reference for Matthew 22. 
And Matthew 22 is the parable of the wedding feast, and and, uh, I'll start verse 2. It says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized the servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Now, I don't see the word neglected in there. But the word for paid no attention is the same word being used for neglect in Hebrews. And notice what happened. When they were, when they were called to the wedding feast, what happened? They paid no attention. Why? They went off, one to his farm, another to his business. There were better things to do. There were more important things to do. Things that, that were happening right now that they had to pay attention to. Things that demanded their attention brought them away from the call to the wedding feast. How should we escape that if we pay no attention to it? How are we going to escape the consequences if we pay no attention to the word of Christ, to the word of the Son, to the salvation that was provided to us by the Son through the death, resurrection, and ascension? And now the session, Christ seated at the right hand, is called the session of him completing his work. He did that for us. But it's the only work that was done for us. It's the only way of salvation. It's the only salvation that's available to anyone. And so what the writer is saying here, how are we going to escape the consequences if we neglect Christ? If we neglect such a great sonship, such a great savior. And we've got to pay attention to this. We've got to pay attention to this because we have plenty of things to pull us away, don't we? We have our own businesses. We have our own things to do. We have families. We have all kinds of, of work going on. I think there's not one of us in this room who doesn't have a bunch of things going on, it seems like, myself included. And sometimes we can place those things above our time with Christ. We can hold those things above holding on to Christ. And sometimes we do that because everything is going okay. And we don't really have any reason to cling to Christ. The business is going better. Things are going better at home. Health is good. The family is good. And I think that's one of the things that was also happening with the Hebrews. Things were probably good for a while. And then when the storms started coming in, the waves of doubt started rolling in. And they wanted to retreat. They wanted to find another anchor, but there was no anchor. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying, you have to hold on to the anchor. He's the only one that's going to get you through it. See, when Jesus came to this world, he spent time showing his disciples and showing us in his word of his power. That he's reliable. He's reliable as an anchor and as a refuge. 
Think about the storm, the boat in the storm. I love this, the Hendricks, when you go into their house, there's a, a little sign, probably, I think it was from Kurt, right? It was a quote from Kurt, one of Kurt's sermons. It says, don't forget who's in your boat. It comes from a sermon that Kurt preached on Jesus in the boat during the storm. And the disciples come to him. Now, I, I, I don't remember hearing this sermon, but it's about the disciples. When they came to Jesus, they said, we're gonna, we're, don't you care that we're going to die? And Jesus said, you have little faith? He said, hush, be still. They forgot who was in their boat. And there's that time when Jesus was walking on the water and Peter was sinking and Jesus was showing him, grab onto me. I'm safe. I'm the anchor right now for you in the midst of this storm. I'm your anchor. Constantly he was showing them that they were safe with him. That he was their anchor that he was their unending, their undefeatable and unchanging anchor. And he was calling them to remember to hold on to him. And he's calling us to do the same. I'm going to close with a uh, little section I, I read out of a uh, blog I just happened to find uh, from a guy named Chad Bird. The uh, blog site is called 1517. But he says this, when all about us are waves and wind that threaten to shipwreck our lives, what we need is an anchor. An anchor that's chained to an immovable hope. And an anchor that's fastened around us. An anchor that holds us fast when storms rage all about us. We need what the author of Hebrews tells us we have in chapter 6, he says this, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. There is no Jesus and dot, dot, dot. There is only Jesus, and he is more than enough. Brothers and sisters, let us be prepared for when the waves of doubt, when the storms are raging, that we would hold on to the anchor, that we wouldn't neglect his voice, we wouldn't stop paying attention to his voice calling us, and we wouldn't neglect the sonship that was earned for us. Ministered, simply the angels were ministers, but the son won the victory for us. Let us not neglect the victory that he won. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for the fact that you took on the persecution, that you took on death, that you took on the things that we were afraid of, the things that we still fear. You, are, you took those on, nailed to the cross, and rose again to bring victory over all those things. Lord, you are undefeatable. You are our anchor. Help us to cling to you in the good times and the bad. Turn our eyes to you, Lord, we pray. It's in Christ's name. Amen.